tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Ronaldo, we've got a number of topics here to go through. Uh, let's jump right in. Uh, I'm suggesting we start with the NRC decision, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission decision on Diablo Canyon. Can you uh, give us some background on that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm really delighted to give you some background. I think there's a major decision that happened. The um, the, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, in the joke uh, one of our folks, Professor Brown, likes to say is, the NRC has never met a nuclear reactor it didn't like. And I think that's really absolutely accurate. Uh, my reason for commenting to that effect is that when the NRC ruled last week that the uh, Diablo Canyon operator, which is PG&E in California, would have, an, have to issue a report by June of 2017 regarding what they thought would, uh, was the ability of that plant to meet its seismic requirements. In other words, in other words prove that the thing won't, is not seismically compromised by the the six separate earthquake faults that are under or around in close proximity to that plant, most of which were not known when the plant was originally authorized. Now, it is inconceivable to me, inconceivable, that any neutral review of the seismic data would permit that to continue operating. So what I think is going on is that the NRC, which has previously listed the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant as the number one most um, uh, in need of repair facility, nuclear facility in America, number one, I think they've realized if they don't move to shut that down, it could further jeopardize the entire nuclear program in the United States. Now, to disclose to our listeners, as they probably know, we played a material role in closing down the San Onofre nuclear reactor here in California, and the last remaining power plant, nuclear plant, is Diablo Canyon, and we are aggressively working and have been for quite some time to close that down as well. So to me, this NRC uh, decision is really it's sending a shot across PG&E's bow saying, you better figure out what you're going to do because by June of 2017, you're going to be out of business. Let's start talking now. And I think that that's what's really going on behind the scenes, uh, and I believe that we will keep the pressure up because with a one in six chance every year that that thing could blow, Fukushima style, uh, we want to close it before 2017. We want to close it today. Yeah. But I'm delighted that the NRC seems to be looking at cutting its losses on Diablo, and that's really great news. So the background on that uh, statement, the one in six chance, is that the Union of Concerned Scientists put out a report, I believe it was called On Shaky Ground, about the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant that said that every year that plant is in existence, there's a one in six chance that there will be an earthquake that exceeds its capacity to withstand 
So it's rated at potentially a 7.5 earthquake it could survive. Uh, But the Union Concerned Scientist is saying that every year there's a a 1 in 6 chance that there will be an earthquake bigger than 7.5 near enough to the the nuclear power plant. And that's very scary. Especially for us who live downwind of it, the Academy's offices are in Santa Barbara, which is right in the strike zone if there were a nuclear catastrophe like Fukushima, uh, the entire area would have radio- radioactive fallout covering the central coast. Uh, so that's that's hopeful news, Ronaldo. It sounds like you're optimistic that that's actually going to that I, this is yeah, going to force I, them to close. Yeah, I think that's I, I think it, it's 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 the equivalent of the shot heard around the world. It's the first time NRCs ever pulled back before they were forced to on a nuclear power plant. But I think they're doing it as a way to take attention away from the nuclear industry, which itself is in a catastrophe. But they're doing it because the one place where they are really exposed, and there's lots of, of um, what's the word, of a recognition of the problem, is here in Diablo Canyon. So by keeping the pressure on in Diablo Canyon, I think they're basically giving themselves um, the way to cut their losses, you know, lose one power plant rather than another. So while we're talking about energy, uh, the other issue in energy that we wanted to touch on in this call was the oil and gas price, the price of oil, uh, and the way that has leveled out at about $60 a barrel. Can you uh, go into that? I'm delighted because, um, I don't know, I forget which show we made that call on. And what we said was that the, the price of oil would bounce back up to probably 60 at worst, $75 a barrel. And at the time I made that call, I said that's and that's that will be a temporary bounce back over the long haul. It will, oil stocks continue to be a bad idea. So if you still own oil stocks, they're up slightly, not from their high. They're way below their high, but they're up slightly from where they were two months ago. Sell them, sell them now. In fact, short sell them because we we're convinced that the academy and, and now the data is coming in that that sixty dollar number sixty sixty five is the range. What it's doing is at sixty dollars per barrel frackers are going to start fracking oil again. As much as I'm against fracking, the obvious reality is that when people frack, more oil comes on the market, thereby creating more supply. Demand is not going up, and therefore the the price or the value of every barrel of oil will continue sideways or down. The only thing that could disrupt that trend would be if the Saudis did something really amazing, like turn their taps on full, which I don't think they'll do because they don't want to strengthen Iran, and they don't want to strengthen Russia. So Right now, we're looking at a situation with a, a continual downward decline in, in consumption is what we predict. And I just was at a talk at Ceres uh, yesterday where one of our fellows, Avery Lovins, did a very compelling analysis with all kinds of graphs and charts about why uh, there will be a continuing downward trend on the price of oil and how oil in his mind, not just mine, but now his mind, is a, in, a, in a permanent downward trajectory. I think that's extremely good news. I think he's right, and it's, cons- it's consistent with what we've been saying on this program for several years now. And I'm very excited that uh, someone of Amory's stature is putting numbers to it and, and, and promulgating it. So the $60 price is a reflection of where the, where the frackers will come back online. Uh, that will hold the price at 60.65 most likely. Uh, and then over time, the continuing diminution of, of oil usage Will, meaning the demand will go sideways or down indefinitely. And as it does, uh, that will put further price pressure on the oil companies. Now, one last thing that I want to mention that's kind of cute. People, and there was a New York Times article on this a couple of days ago, that people are now willing to trade in their hybrids for, in some cases, SUVs or trucks. And the point of the article, uh, if you read it, 
casually. You'd misread it saying, oh, well, people don't really care. And that's not what the point of the article was about. The point of the article was that we've done such a good job with changing the fuel economies of even small trucks, where you can get, them for 30, you can get a 35-mile-per-gallon uh, mid-sized car now, as an example, which when, we, when Prius hit the market, 31 to 33 was considered a good number. So what's really happening is the overall efficiency of the American fleet, the American car fleet, has come down, has improved significantly because of the CAFE standard changes, which we advocated in our book eight and a half years ago. And those changes are putting continuing downward pressure. So even when people decide they don't need their hybrid anymore because they can get a car with a regular engine that will do almost as well as a hybrid used to do or better, um, the total usage of gas is going to go down. Uh, I also think in, in America, which has one of the worst train systems of the developed world, and I don't know if we're going to talk about that today, but um, as an example of infrastructure, I predict that in the next 20 years, you're going to see dramatic increase in infrastructure spending, in part for transportation, because we're going to start to catch up with where we should be in the developing world cycle. We should not have trains that are impossible and, and not, not as efficient as they were even in 1900, 1930, uh, and start to, to seek to have trains that are running and have been running for 25 years in Europe and Asia and elsewhere. Yeah, so Again, do you want to go into the, uh, in, into the issue with the infrastructure and, and the, the, that's coming to light as a result of the recent train derailment in Pennsylvania and all that? Yeah, yeah, what a tragedy. You know, eight people dead, 200 people in the hospital, um, and and the very depressed, forlorn, if you will, uh, president of the Amtrak uh, was on the television saying on CBS, you know, please, folks, this is not a Republican issue or a Democratic issue. We all ride on trains. And what he was referring to is the Congress continues to cut the Amtrak budget. Now, they that train was equipped with the equipment it needed for what's called uh, independent power control. So that had that been able to be turned on, which it couldn't because they were cut off from funds, and so they couldn't complete uh, making the installation effective, that train could not have sped up initially to 76 miles an hour, ultimately to 106 miles an hour, and those eight people would be alive. And that train would have gotten through because even if the human operator goofed up, fell asleep, that, that mechanism would have been placed. Now, Amtrak is under a mandate by the Congress to get all trains to that standard by 2015, the end of this year. But they keep taking the money away. So what the president of Amtrak was pleading for was, look, we all ride on trains. Can we please have safe trains? And I would add to that, can we have trains that are safe and at least as good as what they built in Europe 25 years ago? I mean, it, can we get at least 25 years behind Europe? Because right now we're about 100 years behind Europe. And that's crazy. And, and by the way, we're, we're, we're at least 100 years behind China. So I think that the infrastructure issue and by the way, there's good news on this front. We had last month, so in the month of, um, of uh, April, the largest single surplus of any month since April of 2008, meaning pre-recession. The tax collections were phenomenal, biggest they'd been. So we are running increasing improvements every day on the surplus. When interest rates are close to zero, this is the time the government should be borrowing and spending it on infrastructure when it's cheaper to pay for, before the interest rates go up. So there's no question that infrastructure spending would increase jobs, would accelerate the economy forward, would bump it up. And instead, 
this Congress continues to believe in austerity, which is what is choking Europe so bad. And are we going to go into Europe today? Uh, yes, I think we'll go head into that subject next. Okay, well, let me just uh, let me just segue with the, I mean, Europe still hasn't gotten out of the 2008 recession. They've double dipped at least twice. Um, England is barely above. I mean, right now, England's growth rate is about equal to its inflation rate, which means zero growth. And in all of Europe except Germany, for the most part, you've got a, a growth rate below where it was in 2008. Now, that series of economies all adopted austerity as their way of dealing with the recession. The Americans did mostly austerity and just a little touch, 750 million of stimulus. 750 billion. Uh, 750 billion, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> that 750 billion that we did was small, way too small. And if you listen to our radio program at that time, we said it's half the size of what it should have been. But because of that little bit of stimulus. We've grown at 9% since the recession started, and Europe is still negative 2%. So an 11% swing, the austerity countries, exception to Germany, all got beat up badly. And Germany's getting beat up indirectly because of Europe. Whereas the U.S., with a little bit of stimulus, went forward by 9%. Uh, we could have gone forward much faster. We could be a more solid economy today. We could have... Um, uh, many more people living above the minimum wage. We could start to close the gap between the rich and poor. All would be possible if we would spend a little money while the interest rates are down on our infrastructure and stop killing people on our trains and stop running trains at 50 miles an hour. They run so, at 200 miles an hour everywhere else. So while while we're staying in the U.S. here for a minute, the the question about infrastructure spending is really interesting because – it seems like it would be a bipartisan issue as an investment strategy for the future and for the growth of the economy. But we're seeing that not be the case. Do you see what what is it that makes you optimistic that we might actually change that and get Congress and the president, uh, whoever that president, next president is, to actually pass major infrastructure bills? Well, I, I, didn't, I wasn't being optimistic. I was saying okay. this was the time to do it. No, I, I actually am very pessimistic. Um, but I'm saying this, I'm, I'm, I'm urging the Congress to get smart, and I don't know that it will, frankly. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm concerned about. Also, is that while we have this gridlock and this this continued uh, stall of the uh, ability of Congress to actually move anything, it seems like the infrastructure spending possibility is is remote at best, unless there was some incident like this. Although I don't think this will will move. The, the the public to actually advocate for infrastructure spending, but the you know it, it's pretty remarkable when you see the fact that our trains fall off the tracks 100 miles an hour, whereas like you're saying, trains in Japan and Europe travel at routinely above 150 miles an hour. Yeah, and, and by the way, that, that 100 miles an hour that it hit, that was on a stretch of track where they shouldn't be going more than 50. That was my point. Why are we building railroad tracks that trains can't exceed 50 miles an hour? Now, by the way, I think there's something goofy in that whole thing. I think that the operator, the train operator, did something there. But whether he did, whether he did or not, that why would there be track on the main line between the capital of our country, Washington, and the, new, and the financial market center of our country, New York, and they can't go above 50 miles an hour in parts of places? And, and, and top out, I think they do 100, 120. So when everybody else is traveling at 200 miles an hour cheaper, more cost-effectively, using less oil, less energy. Why is it that we continue 
to be stuck in this mode where we don't do industry spending. I do not understand it. So, well, let's stay in the U.S. again for a little longer here, Ronaldo, and talk about the both the U.S. retail sector and our food supply. Um, which one of those do you want to go take first? Well, let's take retail because I think there's some bad information out about retail. Retail, okay. people got concerned about retail last month because the retail numbers didn't come in as strong as people thought. But if you if you if you if you slice and dice those numbers, what really got what happened was that the department stores got hurt a little bit. Let me tell you why I think the department stores got hurt. The department store customer, by and large, is a customer that is uh, lower income, with the exception of Saks Fifth Avenue and Neiman Marcus, a cup Barney's. There's a few places where they deal with higher-end customers in, in, in department store configuration. But generally speaking, the vast amount of goods sold in the department stores in America are sold to people who are lower income or, or middle at most. That's that's the group that's most disadvantaged with the way this recovery has not produced a gain for the bottom 75% of the economy, the way it has for the top 10%, and particularly the top 1% or 2%. So those retail numbers are a reflection of a continuing destabilizing disequilibrium between the wealthy and everybody else. And I think it's a tragedy, but that's true. Now, at the same time, there were many um, parts of retail, including those that dealt with the wealthy, did very well. But um, there's parts of retail that, it, that have done very well. Um, I'm familiar with men's tailored clothing. It's done fairly well last month. Why? Well, because uh, tailored men's clothing is the workplace uniform of America's man. So more American men are working. Unemployment's down to, what, 5.4%, 5.3 probably by now, 5.3, 5.4, somewhere there. And uh, so people are back to work. And they want to be able to wear workplace attire, which uh, reflects well on them. So it's not a purely discretional spend. That's why I like to look at men's tailored clothing, because unlike um, women's clothing, which tends to be more um, fashion-driven, men's tailored clothing tends to drop off quickest in a recession. Men will say, oh, I don't really need another pair of slacks or a suit or a sport coat. I can do with the one from six months ago or a year ago or two years ago. Um, and it's usually one of the most steady indicators that the pickup has actually happened when, when men's tailored clothing starts to sell well again, which is starting to do. So, and, and, and last month was no exception. In fact, last month was very good. So I think that retail dollars are getting um, completely confused. I think that people are uh, saving more than people would have expected at this stage, although the savings rate has still not budged much in the last month or two. Uh, they're definitely saving, though, from what they're putting in their gas tank. Uh, they put a little more money in the tank last month than they did prior to that. Uh, but I think that the the pattern I'm seeing of consumer spending is that it is, in fact, going to crank up. Uh, so I'm not worried about the retail numbers. I think there were a lot of weather events again last month. Uh, there'll be more of them, by the way, uh, to disrupt retail. But basically, I think retail's in a strong position. So those who are concerned about it or believe it's an indicator that the U.S. economy is stalled, I think are missing the forest for the trees. I don't think it's true. Great. Um, and the other the other topic we want to talk about before we move on to international issues, Ronaldo, is uh, we saw recently that there's a bird flu that's striking many uh, – uh, food-producing farms and, and animal farms, and up to 33 million birds have been destroyed by this flu or by prevention measures. Uh, what's your comment on that? 
Yeah, that's that's the avian flu virus, um, and it is 33 million chickens, ducks, and and uh, turkeys have been destroyed. Um, and a couple of comments on that. So this is the first time that the avian bird flu, which they deal with in Asia all the time, has gotten this deeply into the U.S. And where it's really cutting badly is in Iowa, where 40% of every egg that gets eaten in America originates. And, and, and Iowa has a very tough law, which is what's driving this 33 million number up very high. And the tough law they have is that if any bird in any one of these giant caged facilities these, you know, 100-yard-long, stacked-to-the-tops, uh, caged facilities, if any of the birds get sick anywhere on that farm, all the birds in that farm have to be euthanized. Well, there's one farm where they discovered avian flu in two barns out of I forget how many, and uh, they ended up having to destroy 5 million birds. Now, why is that, you ask? Is it because, um, actually, it was one. They had 26 huge barns. And one of them was infected, and, 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 and 5.5 million birds had to be extinct, uh, euthanized. Why? Is it because Iowa's that much smarter? No, actually, what, why Iowa has that standard is because Iowa permits highest density of egg-laying chickens of any place I know of in America. So when you literally have chickens stacked one on top of the other in metal cages where they can't even open their wingspan, from the floor all the way to the ceiling of these giant barns, and packed in as tight as you can get them. Iowa has learned the hard way that when an infection sets in, it spreads like wildfire in those tight conditions. Yeah. It would be sort of like you know taking somebody with Ebola and locking them in a room where nobody could turn around, and every time they sneeze, they were going to kill somebody else, right? Yeah. Well, Iowa is correct to order the destruction of 5.5 million birds, but what's really causing that is the inhumane practice of the way they're getting their eggs, which will take probably at least two years to recover from, by the way, so because of the lead time with layer eggs, layer hens. So what I, Iowa needs to do is say, you know what? This form of agribusiness is too intense for safe animal husbandry. So in order to protect the long-term profitability of our farms, what we're going to have to is lower the density to where if there is an infection, we can stop the infection in the one barn where it's infected, and we don't have to worry about how fast it would spread because of the infection would just multiply so quickly in that barn, and we'd be unable to keep it away from all the rest of the hens. Because any little bit gets in there, it's going to go like, a, like, you know, like gasoline in a match. I think it's time for Iowa to look at that. And if Iowa's not willing to look at it, I urge the people who write insurance policies in Iowa for egg-laying hens to force the growers to a more intelligent form of husbandry which would leave less density and therefore the opportunity for certain natural resistance of birds to be able to be applied before you have to euthanize so it's a real good lesson about what we do wrong in 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 so-called agribusiness in america and i think we really need to look at it again from a very fresh eye uh as you know uh matt i was a, a organic farmer and on our farm we we had layer hens laying hens and and uh we never had an egg we didn't sell. I mean, literally, never had one that went unsold. And at a premium, because our chickens were fed from organic scraps from a local restaurant and um, were free-range. And because they were free-range, we didn't have them collapsed in tight cages. Our chickens came down with nothing, ever. And we weren't even inoculating them. 
And on mm. and, uh, commercial France, you've got to inoculate, you've got to put in all these terrible antibiotics, which then come back to create drug-resistant bugs for humans. I mean, it's just nuts. The cycle's crazy. And at some point, you take a look at this, like I said earlier about the train. At some point, you know, rational people go, you know, this is crazy that you can only run a train 50 miles an hour in America, and even then there's not many places you can run it 50 miles an hour. And it's even crazier, they so said, let's do infrastructure. And it's even crazier that we have an agribusiness system that is so out of control that in their callous disregard for animal rights, they're actually doing things that are economically crazy, meaning the density is too high to be economically viable over the long haul. Can it work for a year or two or three? Sure, that's how they got there. But it's not a, it's not a prudent, sustainable practice. Very interesting stuff, Ronaldo. I think that the 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 food system and the way we treat animals is is horrifying when people start looking at it and actually – for that and for climate reasons, I've been doing my best to cut back on my personal meat intake. Um, this, you know, this this is clearly an area where things are going to have to shift shift rapidly over the next fifty years at the very most. But as we as we move into a climate constrained world, um, that's just an editorial comment here. Do you have anything well, wait, you want make, to add? Make to another that? one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Make another one. Uh, people, if you can, don't eat commercially raised chicken. Eat organic chicken. It's not not that much more expensive. It's widely available, and you won't have you won't be it won't be full of antibiotics. So if you really need an antibiotic, get a better chance it'll work. Now, unfortunately, everybody else eating them, you can still get drug resistant bugs. But you 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 can preserve the ability of the antibiotic to work for you on certain things if you don't have a superbug, and you can use it in a proper way. When you're eating all this chicken, which is just just unbelievable, just doused with antibiotics. And, and stimulants and growth stimulants and all kinds of other garbage. You're just putting garbage in your body. People have to stop and look at one statistic, and they'll understand what we've been doing to ourselves. We live in a world where the rate of cancer of all kinds has been skyrocketing since World War II, just skyrocketing, not even galloping, skyrocketing. And if you look at all the environmental toxins that we've created, and if you look at all the things we've done to our food supply because of agribusiness, you go, oh, my God, I get the connection. All that crap in the human body will take its toll on our immune system, and eventually we will succumb. And that's what's happening. We're succumbing. Mm. Well, speaking of uh, international pandemics, let's talk about an international trade deal that uh, is in the works. (laughs) We've had a little bit of pushback that looked like the Democrats were going to try to slow it down in the Senate, but then they... Uh, capitulated to what is called fast-track authority for the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. Uh, you've been looking at this for a while now, Ronaldo. Do you have uh, some comments on it? Yeah. First of all, I think the um, the TPP, or Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership, is a very bad idea. Uh, I, I uh, First of all, I, I think there have been any number of excellent commentaries on it. I mean, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon who has been a very, very big proponent of liberalizing trade, is against it. And the reason is there's stuff buried in there that's been negotiated in the dead of night by large companies, basically for company benefits. So I'm I'm afraid that Obama, who's behind this, Obama is in a bubble, and he's being unduly affected by large corporate interests for their economic well-being, short-term economic well-being, not even their long-term economic well-being, their short-term economic well-being, and he's he's permitting himself to be seduced to a very stupid trade policy. And why do I say that? Well, the, the, already it's come out that there's language in this bill, which apparently Monsanto inserted, that would make give Monsanto the right to stop Europe 
from forcing a labeling of GMO as that would be a, quote, restraint of American agriculture, close quote. Well, that's nuts. That's just crazy. Now, and by the way, if that language isn't in there, it'd be very easy for the White House to say so. And when Senator John Tester, a farming farmer uh, from, uh, where is he, Wyoming? I think he's Wyoming. He was up there in Montana, Wyoming uh, area. Tester's, Tester's my, uh, Montana. Montana, yeah. So um, he's, he's basically called it out on, on the agricultural provisions. And, and, and the White House has not responded, saying, oh, no, it's not in there. So, and by the way, Senator Warren has identified numerous provisions that are anti-labor and, frankly, are anti-people. So uh, since the United States and Canada are the only two basically developed Western countries of any consequence that don't require GMO labeling, you're allowed to sell us GMOs and not tell us it's in the food. And as you know, the Academy has a, a truth and labeling project to try and get that out so that GMOs will be at least labeled so people can choose. What TPP could do is it could undercut the authority of Europe, which is which is required GMO labeling. It could undercut the authority of other countries to require uh, GMO labeling. And that, to me, is really crazy. Uh, and, I, and, and, I, and, and and if someone says, well, but the, the TPP will only affect Asia, uh, I don't think that's correct. I think that the TPP is setting up an Asian conversation, but I think there are going to be European uh, corollaries. So what we're really saying is it's time to stop doing trade deals in the dead of night in secret where the only people in the room are corporate lobbyists and come clean with the American public. And if you can't get it approved, then let it go. I fear that Obama is looking to this as a legacy issue. He's putting his, his prestige in the line. I think it's a terrible decision on his part. I hold him responsible for it. It's another one of the, the Obama administration things that I'm very much against. And I'm sorry it gives me the opportunity to demonstrate that I really am impartial and I'll pick on a Democrat and Obama as quickly as a Republican if the policy is wrong and Obama's wrong on this policy. And anything you can do listening to this show to convince your legislators, your state senators, because uh, it affects state uh, agriculture your, your, uh, and, and labor, if you could affect a congressperson, a U.S. senator, please call them, write them. Stop this crazy bill, this, this, this approach. And there may be a way to do that, uh, just to talk for a second about the technicality. What's going to happen is the trade bill is going to, be, is going to have a separate bill uh, that's going to deal with some currency issues that uh, Mitch McConnell has been allowed to split off. And because he allowed that currency issue to come up separately, the Democrats, meaning Reed and his people, have agreed to let the trade bill come up without a filibuster i don't think it's certain that it'll get it will pass uh, even if it's not filibustered and i certainly hope it doesn't because three of the senators who voted to let it come up have previously said they'd vote against it when it did so i think it's 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 too close to call and i hope the democratic senate will hang tough on this one tell the president you know what mr president can't have it it's not good for america frankly it's not good for the world and if, it is, yeah. and if it is, show us. Right. Why, why is it? Why has it got to be a secret? I'll tell you why it's a secret. It's a secret because he's afraid of it. He sees the thing, except corporate interests will kill it, and he's right, most likely. And, and you know, the interesting thing about this and other other inside the Beltway, Washington D.C. deals that they cut are that they do this thing where they let c- Congress people go into a, a sealed room and read the the latest ver- draft of the agreement, but they can't take notes and they can't take it with them. 
And they basically say, all right, go read it you can, you, and then leave and you can go say what you want about it. But there's no way to back up any of the things that the members of Congress are saying or the president's position. And so it's just kind of a big mystery. Uh, and, and the leaked versions of the drafts of the TPP have been pretty scary. Um, the issues you raised are absolutely true. And, and a number of other issues having to do with uh, uh, intellectual property and ways that essentially sovereignty can be compromised. Um, we're, 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 we're basically negotiating in the dark right now. And it just doesn't seem like democracy when you have to do it that way. Um, the, the argument that China is somehow going to go around the U.S. and make their own free trade deal in their region, and this is a way to push back against them, as again, and I, we talked about this before, it, it falls on deaf ears to me. Uh, I think that if we're if we're really going to compete with China, this isn't the way to do it in secret. You know, the well, way to do I, it would be not, the American way. Well, listen, no, that's childish. Well, we're going to stop them because if we don't, I mean, that's like tit for tatism. It's crazy. And on top of that, look, we just went through this. We, the U.S. government, Obama specifically, tried desperately to stop the formation of the Asian Development Bank, and we did a show on this a couple months ago, and. And we, we lobbied all of our allies to, do, to not cooperate because we didn't want the Chinese to have their own, in effect, uh, IMF, World Bank type of setup. Now, the reason we did that is because China, the second largest economy in the world, has almost no voice in the institutions we set up after World War II. And we've kept them that way because the Congress won't let them in. So then, because the Congress won't let them in, Obama tries to stop them from forming their own. When we don't have enough money to do the infrastructure spending Asia needs. So what happened is we lobbied against it, and everybody turned on us. England turned on us. Germany turned on us. Italy turned on us. France turned on us. So th the point is that tit-for-tatism, which just showed up in the Asian Development Bank, is on the table again with TPP. That just because the Chinese will form their own trade unions is not something that should cause us to do something that would jeopardize American commerce, American jobs, or American quality of life, most importantly. So that's what yeah. I mean. It's just—it's so silly. It's hard to even put words to it. So I—I I, by the way, I am proud of the fact, as it's been reported widely in the press, that quote most American business groups are in favor of TPP, and I'm glad to say that the World Business Academy isn't. Yeah. I like being—I like you know that quote by Gandhi. Uh, 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 a man in the right is a majority of one. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So. If we're right, which I'm pretty sure we are, the fact that other business groups are for it and we're not is actually probably a good reason to be cautious, very cautious. Again, I think it's a terrible um, uh, piece of legislation. I think it's a terrible treaty because it's, it's in secret. I think it, it subjects us to great losses potentially, uh, particularly in quality of life, and therefore I would really like to uh, to see it stopped. Yeah, absolutely. Um and on the international scale, Ronaldo, we, we touched on Europe a little bit, but there's more you want to say on the, the Greek exit, the possibility of Greek leaving, Greece leaving the European Monetary Union. Yeah, I think that the, I think that the, you know, there's been a kind of little bounce in the, in the, in the European bond market, the U.S. bond market too, uh, and people are feeling much more sanguine about Europe's growth because Italy and France have uh, basically bottomed down and are coming back up, uh, although not uh, anywhere near as strong as they need to be to take Europe to the next level. And Germany's done well through the recession. Uh, but but what, what's really going on is that Germany is misreading 
what this game of chicken is likely to produce. And what I mean by that is pushing the Greeks to stay in a system where 50% of their people are unemployed and not giving them a way out. Now, I recognize the Greeks are not doing what they need to do, too, to end this crisis. The Greeks have an incredible internal problem with not collecting taxes and with people who are allowed to retire at 55 and you know a welfare state that is totally not affordable by Greece as a nation. Given that all that's true, you can't tell half the country to stay unemployed while you beat them up some more with austerity. Remember, they never got a bounce even. They're still operating from 2007, 2008, the depths of recession. Yeah. So here we are seven, eight years later, and we're all feeling, well, the pressure's a little bit off of us even though our middle class didn't grow, but at least we're back to work. They don't. They're not back to work. 2007-8 hasn't ended for them yet. So I think the, 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 Greek, the German government is misunderstanding, and I think the bond market is, is reflecting this. They think that somehow Greece is at risk and Germany and Europe isn't. And I think that Germany is at a bigger risk in France than Greece because the money that the Greeks are going to default on if they get thrown out of the euro is going to be basically German and French bank debt. And German and French banks are still unable to meet the new stress tests, meaning their capital base is not strong enough. They haven't repaired it yet from the recession, unlike the American banks, which have repaired it. So you're talking about a weaker system, financial system, Germany, France, the banking system, and you're talking about them holding most of the debt, a huge chunk of the debt from Greece, and they're playing you know, like Russian roulette with the Greeks. And I think it's just crazy. So I, 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 And remember, the Greeks don't get thrown out of the European Union when they come out of the euro. The right. euro is a currency union. They still will be in the European Union, and they'll have free trade barriers, so no trade barriers between them and any other country in Europe. When they start printing drachma again, they'll end up with a dramatically lower cost for their agriculture, for their exports. Greece will start to pick up steam fast. And the Germans and the French are going to be dealing with the international monetary crisis that that will have started to precipitate because their banks are in trouble at that point. Interesting. So from that perspective, a, a Greek exit could be very good for Greece. I think it would be good for Greece at this stage. Now, Greece is still going to have to do the hard work of cleaning up the corruption in its country. It's going to have to collect taxes. It's going to have to take a realistic view of what it can afford in terms of welfare benefits. Because it's you know one of the highest support welfare systems in Europe, and has one of the lowest economies, so you can't have that be out of whack. But once it starts to produce again with its own currency, I believe that it will quickly begin to pick up speed, and you'll see that 50% unemployment start to drop. And I wouldn't be surprised if within a couple three years it's down around 10%, which would be phenomenal given how long they've been stuck at this 25-50% number. Well, and if you saw a success like that of them opting out of the euro and as a result their economy picking back up, you could see other countries doing the same thing. I mean, Spain has a huge unemployment problem still. I think that's a possibility. They're a much bigger economy than Greece. No, because Spain's actually coming along and its economy is picking up. So I and, and remember Spain's insulated in some senses because it's got so much photovoltaic and wind. But um no, I think the hmm. real risk is, is, is the is the UK. In other words, Right. I think that even though the U.K., uh, Britain, is not part of the European Europe Monetary Union, so they still use pounds, as you know, um, the U.K. was promised by David Cameron when he won re-election that he would hold within a year, I believe it's within a year, a, um, a referendum on whether the U.K. 
is going to stay in the European common market at all. And if Greece were to drop out and cause the chaos I think it would cause in the monetary union, I think it would further confuse British voters and conceivably leave British voters more inclined than not to leave the European Union, even though those are two separate issues, uh, because there seems to be close to a majority that want to leave now. And when you throw in, as an as a, uh, oddball factor, that Scotland, which, remember, Scotland in the current elections won all but one seat, was the Scottish National Party, SNP, won all the Scottish seats but one. So there's a uniformity of opinion in Scotland right now, and the Scots would probably want to stay in the European Union. So you could see this crazy thing happening where Grexit happens, the Greeks drop out of the European Union, European uh, Monetary Union. The British get confused and think, oh my goodness, maybe we should come out of the Union itself, which is a trade union. Uh, the uh, Scots go, you know what, if they're going to leave, we're going to stay. Good chance to break Scotland away from London, because now we've got a, a better case than we had last time. We almost won last time. And Scotland could separate from the U.K., and stay involved with the European Union, conceivably. I mean, it's a very interesting set yeah. of dynamics, and I don't understand why Germany would unleash that. They don't have to. They don't have to. This is really more about um, the Angela Merkel playing to her base, saying, well, those bad Greeks, they're Southerners, and they're lazy, and they're shiftless, and they had this big party for themselves, and they paid for it with our money, and now we're going to get the money back. It's more like a spanking, um, uh, it's like a morality code, than it is a real right. economic policy at this point, and I think it's got to change. Very interesting. Um, you know, let, I want to zoom back in, back to the academy here for a minute, Ronaldo, and uh, talk a little bit about the conference that you attended this week with the, the group series uh, in San Francisco. Yeah, um, and actually, I was like, not only did I get to attend it, I got to see some old friends and like Amy. You're Robinson. a speaker there. Yeah, and I was a speaker there, and apparently it went over well. Uh, and um, the um, series, for people who don't know it, is about 25 years old. It's spelled C-E-R-E-S. And it was formed after the Exxon Valdez crisis. And it was formed by a bunch of companies that said, you know, we better start thinking about this sustainability issue. What's really important? And are the environmentalists crazy, or is there something we should be looking at? And what, what I'm proud of, it, it series is run by a good friend of mine, Mindy Luber, uh, she's done a brilliant job as the CEO. She's a lawyer by training. Uh, she's been the CEO for at least eight years now. And um, what they've done at Ceres is they've gotten huge multinational companies together in the room repeatedly, year in, year out. And they've been able to start formulating policy that the multinationals come to see are actually in their best interests, even though some would have thought on first blush they were environmental policies. So, for example, Ceres has done a, a really brilliant job of identifying water scarcity as a critical issue. And now you've got companies like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola going, yep, we get that one because we need the water to make the Pepsi and, and you know, the brown fizzy water. The brown fizzy sugar water can't be made without water. It's the basic ingredient. So, um, and you've got companies like you know, uh, Ford Motor Company, uh, which, which has really developed a sustainability uh, core sustainability commitment, and it's saving money on every car they build and improving the quality of their cars. Uh, and, you know, and IKEA, of course, is a famous member of theirs. Um, but so, so what what they, what they really are is an organization, probably the best in the world, actually, that's looking at the issue of sustainability in the capital market. Sustainability as business strategy, sustainability from clean energy and climate, and sustainability from the point of, of water availability. Uh, so uh, what I was at was the 
conference that they have uh, every year. There's, there's a couple every year. And I was at the one in San Francisco, a three-day meeting. And it was extraordinary to see the big names in the room. And about 380 people there, 400 people. Uh, and uh, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, EPA Administrator, uh, Gina Murdoch, was there and speaking. The CEO of, uh, of CalPERS, the largest pension fund in the world. And by the way, uh, I... I got to sit next to her at lunch and chat with her a bit, and an interesting lady got to hear her speak. Uh, very interesting uh, what CalPERS is doing and how they're trying to have more impact on the way corporations behave in a positive way because they are shareholders. Um, you know, it was a, it was a fascinating several you know couple of days, and and I was I was honored to be asked to speak, and I was delighted to hear what I heard from everybody else, and it's a real ally of what the academy is about because series is out there trying to show businesses how it's in their best interest to be more prudent in these four areas I mentioned. That's excellent. Yeah, and you know, it's it's striking to to see the kind of the the business for good movement for lack of a uh a real coherent term, but all these groups that are in the business space who are making the case in business and from a business perspective that sustainability and caring for the whole of the of the planet is is in the interest of business, not only long-term, but even in short-term and in profitability. And I was just thinking about it today that that must be something of a, a dream come true for you who's been out there for, since 1987 uh, with that message, Ronaldo. And I, I was wondering if you have a perspective on that after the conference. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the main takeaway for me is that which was unthinkable to articulate in 1987 is the minimum required to be in the room in 2015. In other words, what we thought of as a conversation that it'd be too hard to even have has become the minimum entry point for where we have to go collectively. And you're seeing large companies, really large companies, understand how their fate is more closely tied to sustainability than they ever envisioned or believed. So, and you don't just get the sustainability officer who has a vested interest in sustainability. You, you get people who are looking at these issues now from the point of view of, uh, what keeps a corporation alive and going and growing. Uh, the session I was involved in, which dealt a lot with um, uh, how directors act on public company boards and, 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 and a number of really key issues, sustainability to me is much more than an environmental issue. That's why I'm proud of Ceres, who started over the Exxon Valdez and has you know entered these other areas with a lot of intelligent research, tremendous amount of education. You know, a sustainable business strategy to me means you're going to continue to be making profits tomorrow because you made them in a smart way today. Yeah. Sustainable capital markets. You know, if you don't have a sustainable capital market, you're going to have another crash. Does anybody want that? I don't think so. If you don't have a sustainable uh, environment, um, climate change is going to lunch you. I mean, it's already the, the disruptions from climate are accelerating on a daily basis globally and even in the U.S. And then, of course, last but not least, I think wasn't it you, Matt? I asked you to look up how many people in the world today don't have clean drinking water. Didn't you come back with the number of 750 million? That's right. Yeah. So I mean, think about that. 750 million people don't have clean water to drink? That's pretty staggering. And I believe the statistic is that within 10 years or less, that number is going to be or five years or less. That's going to be um, double that, or 1.5 billion people. Well, you know, you can't run a railroad if your passengers are dying. And, 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 and this railroad called Spaceship Earth is not taking care of the passengers. We yeah. have 750 million that can't even get a drink of water, and it's growing every day. 
So I'm glad that Ceres is tackling these issues and, and helping to translate, as we like to do in the academy, that smart business actually, doing things in a sustainable way is smart business. And it's dumb business to ignore either the environment or the consequences of our off-balance sheet actions. Absolutely. Um, Ronaldo, we had our monthly meeting. The Academy does a monthly community meeting in Santa Barbara uh, on the second Thursday of every month, and ours was last night. And uh, another topic that you talked about that I'm, I'm interested to have you update our listeners on is the California drought situation. Um, it, it's becoming more and more dire every day. We had a little teaser rain yesterday, um, but it's just I flew over some of the the um, the reservoirs today on my way back from Santa Barbara and was blown away by how low the ones I saw just out of the window were. It's 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 really getting bad and, and we're in serious trouble. Can you can you talk a little bit about the efforts to stop that? Yeah. Uh well first of all, just to put it in context, um the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA uh charted and I don't know how they figured this out but they did it somehow that this is the worst drought in California in 1,200 years. And that's, that's quite a statement because mm. Southern California has been an arid, semi-desert area all those years. And this is that much worse. So there's a condition called extreme drought, which is about a third of California. And then there's two-thirds of California, which is extraordinary, which is way beyond extreme, meaning mm. there's just no water. And we know from satellite imaging that the San Joaquin Valley, where the breadbasket of America, <clears throat> is literally sinking. I mean, literally, there's places where the ground is several inches lower because the water has been sucked out of the aquifers. So we're, we could be staring at a huge agricultural crisis that could be brought on fairly suddenly. Um, and, and it's hey, can you avoided. say more about that? Can you say more about that? Why would it, well, yeah. why would it come on suddenly? Well, because see, it, what's happening is in San Joaquin Valley, in the uh, in, in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, for example, where we know from satellite imaging that the aquifers are basically being completely emptied, and that's right. True. So the groundwater is being pumped out at a. They're actually not measuring how fast it's being pumped out, but it's being pumped out more and more every day as the surface water is, uh, you know, not re- not being replaced by rain. Uh, yeah, or other, otherwise, meaning the, the aqueduct or otherwise. Yeah, so, and you just used a keyword, you said measured. The, the problem is in California, we have no way to measure what agriculture uses in, in, in individual farmers. I can't tell you. So when you drive between Santa Barbara and, and Salinas, you'll see people doing extremely wasteful things like using rainbirds to sprinkle whole farms. I mean, thousands of acres. Well, that's just insane because you're just putting water up in the air where it evaporates where drip irrigation is at least 10 to 15 times more rational and, and, and conservative of the water. But because we don't measure the water, and because water rights in California, and this is true of most of the western states, arose in a period of time in the 1800s, where whoever had the water first had as much water as they wanted, and the next guy only got what was left. So there's no way to monitor, to measure the amount of water any individual farmer is taking out of the out of the ground. So what's happening is, in an attempt to get the water they need, and because they aren't been willing to haven't been willing to change their farming their agribusiness, large business farming practices, they deep they, they deepen the well. They, they send the, the well shaft down deeper as the water table drops, and as the aquifer empties, and that only wa- works until you get to the other side of the aquifer. Then you hit rock. So we don't know how much more time we've got before those wells can't be drilled any deeper. 
Um, so it, it, it's not a, it, a simple thing like, well, if we put a bigger pipe in the ground, it's going to work. That's not the issue. The issue is we're not recharging the groundwater, as you pointed out, either through surface water or through other mechanisms. So it's really time for a, a crisis approach to water in California, and that crisis has not yet really uh, percolated. Now, there, I saw an interesting statistic. 92% of the people in the state of California know we're in severe drought, which I think is very good. It shows their looks paying attention. 80-some percent of the total population thinks it's the worst problem we got. So people are getting clear now there's a problem. But when you go past those two statistics, what you find is that people feel like, well, what can we do? Here's what they mean. We've got the total amount of water that all the humans in California use is about 12%. So when you brush your teeth, flush your toilet, take your shower, whatever, you turn on your garden hose, altogether that's only 12% of all the water we use. So when Brown, Governor Brown says, lower your consumption by 25%, what he's really saying is reduce total water consumption by 3%, leaving 97% unaffected. Well, there's just no way you're going to get there. So we can reduce by 25, and we will, but that's not going to solve the problem. So what's going to have to happen is a, a series of things. For example, we have a set of rules in California which does not permit us under certain circumstances to re-inject fully treated, otherwise safe to drink water from our sewage treatment facilities, which are required to clean it up so well that, you know, fish can swim in it, we're not allowed to put that back in the ground, which is crazy. Uh, One of the reasons we can't is because there's so many pharmaceuticals that get flushed down the toilet Mm. that we don't know for sure how to economically remove them. So we're a little afraid of that. I've seen studies that say uh, re-injecting the groundwater actually can eliminate them because by letting it trickle down through layers of dirt and gravel and whatnot, it gets, it, it, gets, it gets filtered on the way down. We just don't know the answer yet. In fact, as was pointed out to me by the head of the Santa Barbara Water District just this morning at a, at a special event I went to with the Bren School Dean of Studies and a group of students, um, they, she pointed out to me that they don't even have a list of things they should be testing for that mm. are the things that we are all concerned about. For example, pharmaceuticals is not on that list. As yeah. Example. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Let's game that out just a little bit further. I mean, it, I don't want to make you make any predictions here, but I'd like to know what you think about the possible ramifications to the economy if we were to hit a kind of moment of, you know, the the other end of the aquifer. If we couldn't drill anymore in the wastewater, I mean, sorry, the the groundwater all of a sudden was no longer available for even just a small percentage of the California agricultural industry. Well, I think first of all, you would see the impact immediately outside of California before you'd see it in California, because California produces this amount, this vast amount of food for the nation and, and the world. I mean, so 87% like 50% of, of the nation's food, yeah. Yeah, 87% of the almonds we raise in California are exported. So I'm not even sure that's the U.S. I think that's 87% outside the country. Even. So that's the number one water-consuming crop we have in California. Uh, and it may be this, it, it, that's an outside California 87%. But even so, the number's very large, you can tell. I can't, I'm not yeah. sure whether it's U.S. is in that number or not, but it's a huge number, 87% for export. So what you're going to see is you're going to see a dramatic decline um, in what we can ship to other states. And what they will tend to do in California is the value of the produce will go up, and they will sell it to the place closest to them, because then the shipping costs will be lower. 
So the places that will get hurt the worst when California agriculture gets crimped are the places that couldn't get California tomatoes 25, 30 years ago. So you're talking about the Midwest. You're talking about the South. And a lot of places are going to get hurt a lot. Um, so the, food the prices thing, will go up. Food prices will go up. But there's one thing I want, to, I want to tie into this, which is very interesting. And nobody's watching this but the Academy, as far as I can tell. We're going through a honeybee collapse in this country. And I think there's something like 40% of the hives have collapsed in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, the, in California. Well, 100% of almonds require honeybees for pollination. So what's happening is, and I think, and, and by the way, the, um, there's a lot of science which indicates right now that the reason for the, the, the honeybee collapse is our persistent pesticides. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, particularly ones that have a uh, nicotine base. Neonicotinoids? Um, yeah, nicotinoids. Uh, and so, so what's happening is you've got these stressors on agriculture. Water's a stressor. You've got the bees aren't pollinating as a stressor. And when you combine these together, you, and, 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 in, and in the world of animal husbandry, you're, the density of production, as we covered in Iowa, is too high, and frankly, it's too high in many other forms of of animal husbandry here in the United in, in California, including egg farming. So when you when you put all these stressors together, I think what you're going to see is that agribusiness is sort of reaching the limits <clears throat> of what it can do, even with the tremendous political power it wields. So we know, for example, and you you uh, did you refer to gliophosphates in this earlier roundup in this? No, program? I didn't. Okay, no. okay. so um, maybe it was a conversation I had with someone else, but but basically. Roundup, which is glyphosate, has now been identified as a very high likely carcinogen. Which is a weed GMO, killer or an herbicide, yeah. right? Or pesticide? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's yeah, yeah, it's a, it's 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 a, uh, a, a, a what's called a persistent one. So that means that when you put Roundup on the fields to kill the weeds, it only kills the weeds, but it doesn't kill the corn or the soybeans that were raised with this genetic modification. So GMOs are safe, and so you can put massive amounts of, of glyophosphate on a farm, Roundup, and not kill the corn or soy you're trying to grow. Well, what's happening is that resistant weeds are cro- cropping up like crazy. Right. And as a result of resistant weeds now, what you're seeing is people are going, well, you've got to put something in that's even more toxic than glyophosphate. So, wh- and, and, and all that is causing the price of agriculture to go up because you need more fertilizer, you need more pesticides, you need more insecticides. And at some point... That would have stopped, that whole cycle would have stopped, but for the political power agribusiness controls. I mean, you know, the advisor to Obama on agriculture is the guy who lobbies for, used to lobby for Monsanto. So you, you got a very incestuous situation here. And because of that political power, the agribusiness has been able to get rules that they protect them, if you will, from natural forces of the marketplace. Now, at some point, even that level of protection will fail them, however. Because if you haven't got bees so, in Ronaldo, I don't care who your uh, Absolutely. Uh, in, in our closing minute here, do you have a, a reflection on our economic doomsday clock? We were at nine minutes to midnight last month. And from what I'm hearing, it's sounding like we're, we're in, a, in a similar position. Uh, do, you have, do you have a take on that? Yeah, it hasn't gone forward, hasn't gone back. Um, I don't see anything that's come up in the last 30 days that has dramatically increased the risk 
of an economic meltdown, and I've seen nothing that has dramatically reduced the risk. I think there are some pressures I should identify. I think the pressures towards um, economic challenges six months from now, uh, assuming the Fed starts backing off of its easement, if it, so it raises interest rates. Uh, I think there's um, risks associated with things like Brexit uh, and the implications for French and German banks particularly. I think there are other issues out there that could cause a great deal of destabilization to occur, but they haven't happened in the last 30 days. They're things we're looking at and tracking for what they'll do in the future. So with that in mind, uh, and because it's still a moving target, I'd say leave the clock where it's at right now at nine minutes to midnight. Excellent. Is there anything else Which you want to add way, at all before we wrap up? Yeah, yeah, nine minutes to midnight is not enough. I'm not going to be a happy camper until we're at least 20 minutes to midnight. So we've got a long way to go. Yeah, and it'd be nice if we were like eleven oh one instead of eleven. What is it? Fifty one. Right? Yeah, It'd be a lot better. Um, okay, no, I guess the final comment is that uh, we didn't touch on the bond market. I want to thank uh, the listener who knows who he is, who asked us to cover TPP today. Uh, I'm not going to mention him because I know that we may be hearing from him again, and uh, I'll let it go at that. Uh, I'm also really grateful for we had a couple other questions come in this month. Please send in your questions or comments that you want us to, to tackle. We love getting them, and we love being in contact. And please tell your friends. Uh, this show is free, and um, the more of you who listen, the more impact we can have. So please get your friends and neighbors and get them to tune in and, and know that there's going to be a lot of good news we'll be sharing. In fact, we'll be announcing a major new service on our next program. You won't want to miss that, a new free service as well. Uh, and a really major one. So please uh, stay tuned and tell your friends, and uh, thanks for listening. Absolutely. And with that, if you would like to stay in touch with us in between shows, please visit worldbusiness.org. And if you want to send us your questions, we love hearing from you. Uh, email them to us at info at worldbusiness.org. Until mo next month, thank you for listening. <laughs>